We are in our series entitled Ready. Uh, Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, as we're looking to see how we are to be ready for all that God has for us. As we also do, and we're going to be getting into this in the next couple weeks, talking about the very second coming or the second coming of Christ. And today, as I was uh, thinking of this passage and I was thinking about Paul's words, I mean, we had just come off last week. We talked a lot about sexual immorality. Next week, we're going to get into many of the end time study of what's going on and going to happen in the end time. But wedged in between this are some Paul's words to the Thessalonians, and he's teaching them and telling them how they are to live and how they are conducting themselves. He's patting them on the back, saying he's doing, they're doing a good job. He's saying you're doing a good job what you're doing, but I want to encourage you with what you're doing to continue to do it more and more. And as I read and I study this passage, it reminded me of an ad campaign uh, from the 1990s. It was the computer company IBM, and they had as their advertising uh, phrase was think. They were talking to get people to think in their product. You'd look at their product and the idea was if you're a thinking person, you'll use their product. Well, of course, Mac comes, uh, Macintosh, Apple, comes out with this response to that and their response was not just think, but think different. And I thought, and they turned it on its head. They said, we want people to think differently about things. And you know, I thought about that and I thought, you know, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the world tries to really have us think a certain way. It wants to, to really pull us in and conform us to the pattern of this world and how we are to think, how we are to live, how we are to interact with our relationships, how we are to love, what jobs we pick, how much money we go for. All, that's what the world is trying to cram us in. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to think different. I want you to be different than the world around you. Now, some of you are different and not in a good way. Um, some, some of you are just plain weird, okay? Uh, I'm not, I'm normal. So, um, abnormal, abnormal. Sorry, I forgot the ab there in the front. Abnormal. Uh, but we, the God, Bible is calling us to live differently than the people around us. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. If we're to take an honest assessment of our lives, we're to take an inventory of our lives, how much are we really living differently than the world around us? Now let me ask you, here's some questions for you. And you can tell if you're living differently than the world around you. What shows are you watching? What websites do you go to? How do you spend your money? Why did you choose your career? How do you interact in your relationships? These are all questions that we need to ask ourselves if we are going to be different than the people around us. We have to take an honest assessment of ourselves and evaluate. How, 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 what do we value? How do we live? See, God is calling us to be different. Not just think different, but to be different. That means in our thoughts and in our actions than the people around us. Why? Well, we're going to look at that today. So as we jump into this message today, I'm going to ask God to speak to us. So let's open our hearts, open our minds to the truths of God's word and see what he has for us today. But let's ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, please, we come before you today as your children. In the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, we come. And we know, Lord, that you long to communicate yourself to us. Lord, you've given us supremely your son that you've sent to us and given us your word. Lord, you've given us your spirit to live within us. You've surrounded us with people that love us. And Lord, I pray today that we truly might see who you are and what it is that you have for us, that we might truly be and live different than those around us. So Lord, please glorify your name in our midst. Use us now. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully you've turned um, with me. If you haven't, I would encourage you to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been going verse by verse through this wonderful, action-packed book. It's been pretty phenomenal. Uh, I have really enjoyed this greatly. And as we jump in here, we jump in here, we look at verse, start in verse 9. So everybody look at verse 9 for me. And in verse 9 we read, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now Paul, as we see, uh, just to pause here for a moment, Paul has three themes that he has going through every one of his letters. And he's written about 12 of the New Testament letters. Some wonder about Hebrews, but uh, we're sure that he's written so many different letters. You have First and Second Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. 
So he's written all of these different letters, and usually almost in every one of his books, with the exception of possibly Philemon, you have three threads that go through each one that are woven throughout, and it's faith, hope, and love. You see that through each book. As you go through it and you study it, there's faith, hope, and love. But for Paul, and and for us, the supremest of all of those are, is love. Love. And we see this within 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about this. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul is extrapolating on love, and he's saying, I want you to have love for one another. Now, the word that's used here is the word Philadelphia. We all know the word Philadelphia because of the city. The city of Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, you find that that's a big giant lie. Okay? There is no brotherly love in Philadelphia, especially in sports. They have the worst sports fans almost in any sport. Okay, but it's known as the city of brotherly love. Now, it's a compound word in Greek, and the way that it works out is phileo, which is one of the Greek words for love. It means like brotherly love right there. But then you have aldelphos is the, the word, uh, for, excuse me, first it's love, and then you have aldelphos, which is the Greek word for brothers. And it literally means, the words together, means love for someone who comes from the same womb. So it's the idea of being in family. That we are, to have, we are a family. When you come to know Jesus Christ, when you are born again, born from above, you enter into God's family. And then you have brothers and sisters. In the early, early church, they would call each other brother and sister, and they would greet one another with a holy kiss. And many unbelievers actually accused the early church of incest because they didn't, believe, they didn't understand what this meant. Brothers and sisters. And why they would kiss one another. And wait, you're kissing your sister? That's weird. You know, there were accusations that were labeled at, um, at the church. But he's saying that, no, it's, we're part of a family now. That people that are far off, no matter what their background is, no matter where they come from, you have been brought into God's family. Where there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. For all are one people now in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying there, he's saying that you have brotherly love for one another. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. See, Paul is talking about having love. We all need to have love. You know, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if I speak in tongues, I have great ecstatic utterances. I mean, there's just amazing movements of the Spirit of God. And if I am speaking in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm nothing. It means nothing. Or he says, but I have not love, I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the TV show, The Gong Show. That big gong, that's what I picture going off. If you don't have love, bong, that's what he's doing. He's just hitting that gong. But he's saying a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, I mean, I could be up here dressed in a $10,000 suit. I could, I could have all mysteries of everything going on in my life. Being able to talk about all these great mysteries of God's word. And I have all this knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But have not love. Nothing. If I give away all I have, I show my dedication, Lord, here it is. I deliver my body to be burned. I'm a martyr. I die for my faith. But if I have not love, I gain nothing. See, love is integral. It is absolutely absolutely essential in our walk with Christ. We have to have Love. And Paul is telling us, I want you, if you want to please God, if you want to be different than everyone around you, then you have to love greatly. That's how much we are to value love. We have to love greatly. We have to love passionately. It means brotherly love too here, loving one another passionately. The truth is though, some of us have a hard time loving our brother. That's something that God's called us to do, and we have a very hard time with that. But see, God is, it's in the church, it's in the family of God where this love can truly be seen. Because this is where we forgive one another. This is where we encourage one another. We admonish one another. We overlook minor offenses. We try to see the best in a person. We oversee divisions from culture and politics and all of these different things. Because we're united in Christ. Because of what we have unites us far better than anything that could ever separate us. 
So we have to love greatly. Now, this love, though, involves a certain person, a certain person. It says, you have been taught of God. You've been taught of God. Now, when we talk about love, we need to understand something about love. First of all, we need to understand and look at the Scriptures talking a great deal about love, such as 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, when Paul says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. That's an amazing theological statement in those three words. God is love. What that means is God in his essence is love. God, at his very fabric of his being, is not the epitome or the personification, but by his nature and essence is love itself. Now, here's something fascinating. Love only exists in relationships. Meaning that there has to be at least two parties to have love. So God in his essence, by the way, this is proving the Trinitarian nature of God. That God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. The three are not three gods, but one God in three persons. And God, in His person, in His essence, is a love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past. God has always God is self-existent. He has no creator. No one made God. No one came up with God. But God is, at his very being, one God, revealing himself in three persons. So that statement, God is love, is a profound statement. And the fact that we, can under, we need to understand that as we're jumping in and delving into this topic of what it means to truly love and have love. We see that love, if we're to love greatly, and first of all, we have to understand where that love comes from. That originates from God. And any love that we experience in some way even though it's been, it's been dented, if you will, damaged, is from God. The ability to have that love or have any experience, any love, is from God. But with the fall, those loves and those desires have often been perverted and marred. So we need to understand that it, love originates from God. Because God and we said before, it's in the Trinitarian fashion. And, but we have to remember something about the Trinity. Trinity is very hard to understand. But we have to remember that the Father is God, but He is not the Son, and He is not the Spirit. And the same with the Son. The Son is not the Father, and is not the Spirit, but the Son is God. And the same with the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but the Spirit is God. As Athanasius, who this is a creed in early Christianity, he wrote this. There's a greater creed to this, but this is one statement. He says, so likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity, which means truth, to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and God. So in essence, God in his essence, it originates from his person. That is who God is. God is love but love is not God. Converse is not true. Because some people think that love is God. No. God is love, but love is not God. We have to remember that. God is love in his essence. Now, we need to understand that truth because and need to understand that we can love at all because he first loved us. 1 John says this, we love because he first loved us. God, we can never even understand what love is unless God chose to love us first. God made the move. First of all, God made us. God didn't have to made, make us. He didn't have to make you. He didn't have to make mankind. James Weldon Johnson, the great African-American poet, wrote a poem called God's Trombones. And in it, he, he imagines God creating man. I mean, God creating the heavens and the earth. And he sits, at, he sits on a beach looking out at his creation. And God is lonely. And then God comes up with a thought to make man. Well, let's, let's go back. That's poor theology. God, first of all, didn't have to make man. God doesn't get lonely because that's a characteristic of mankind. God is perfectly happy in and of himself. And yet... Out of an overflow of himself, the joy of God being God decides to make man. So he creates us of his own will, of his own choice, of his own volition, because of his love. But then, and that would have been enough, but then we rebelled. And we are at our hearts rebellious, each one of us by nature and by choice. 
And God, again, showed the supreme act of his love by sending himself. See, this is why we go back to God being triune. When we understand that God exists in a love relationship within himself, we get a better understanding then of what it meant to send his son. See, when God sent his son, he was sending the best that heaven had to offer unto us. That's an amazing thing, to see how much love God has for us. We love because he first loved us. And he showed us that the depth of that love on the cross when he died, he sent his son to die for our sins. That is the depth of his love. And then when we, are, when we place our faith and trust in Christ, God does something magical. He actually regenerates us to believe. He places his spirit within us that we might live the life that he desires. So in other words, the fact that we can love one another truly the way this have this brotherly love that the Bible talks about originates from God's spirit within us. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 through 5. I'd like you to look at this passage. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, but because God's love has been poured out, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given, un, given to us. That's the last phrase. You should underline that if you have that in your Bible and you're looking at it. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts because of His Spirit. God has given us His Spirit. He's poured it out unto us. So what is He saying about that? He's saying that this love, I want you to, it, you have been taught by God to love one another. God's Spirit was in, within you and it's a byproduct of your relationship with Him. But yet you still have to learn to choose to love. And then in verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout, throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In other words, he's saying, I want this to be your consuming passion. It originates from a certain person, but it's to be our consuming passion. We are to passionately love one another. That's what God is calling us to do. This is to be what we desire. It's a truth that comes from the mouth of God himself, that we are to love one another. See, love is not something that is static, but it's active and moving. It can't be something where you just come in, get your spiritual fix, and leave. God desires us to be in community with one another. See, it's easy to love someone on the surface. It's hard when you get to know someone. Then it gets harder to love. That's why I counsel couples a lot. I've had couples come to me, especially younger couples, and they go, we want to get married. Oh, that's great. How long have you known each other? Three weeks. No. Because you're like, we're in love. No, you're an infatuation. That's different. Totally different. Because see, what happens in the fatuation stage, and there are stages that we go through in our love relationships, this is the stage where you think about each other all the time, and you see the best in each other, and all these things are great. And, and, and I counsel people, you've got to get through that infatuation stage in order to find out what love really is. Because see, in the infatuation stage, faults are minimized. The, things that they, the way that they love you is maximized. So the problem, though, is after you get married and all those things regulate, now you see the faults, they become maximized, and the good things become minimized. And you see then that people go, I made a mistake. I hear that a lot. See, that's why I tell couples if they're dating, you should date for at least a year and a half. Why? Or a year to year and a half. Here's why. Because a person can hide themselves from you. And you might just think of them loving you, but you fail to remain objective to really look at them. So imagine you look at them, you look at how they interact, they go through stages of life, how they deal with money, how they deal with stresses, how they deal with different choices and family, and how you get along with your family and their family. In this context in America, that's what I encourage people to do. See, that's where I I love going to India because India actually changes my perspective a lot because here we have what we call love marriages, but yet divorce is extremely high here. But in India, they have more of arranged marriages and divorce is very minimal because they understand more than anything else that love is a choice. And we have to understand that, that we choose to love other people. We choose to overlook faults. We choose to forgive another person. We have to remember that. It's to be our consuming passion that we are truly to grow in our love, to have more and more of it. We need to examine love by what it gives 
Because we have a tendency to look at people of what they give us, and that's how we respond. That you love me, I'll love you back. You hurt me, I hurt you back. That's not how it is to be biblically. See, we hurt God, but yet he still continues to love us. And we can see the supremest act of love in John chapter 3, verse 16, where we read, For God so loved the world. That's, those are pretty amazing words there. First of all, for God. For God, the greatest being in the entire universe that is self-existent, that is transcendent beyond our ability to understand, yet is completely holy, just, wrathful, merciful, good, benevolent, long-suffering, patient, merciful, and gracious. This God, who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, could just eliminate us in a moment. But yet he decided to show his mercy to us. For God so loved. Loved. Love. Imagine, I mean, imagine what it's like for those of you who, have, are, who are married or have been married. Remember when you first got married and the love that you felt? Just that excitement that someone could love me? That's a thing that we ask ourselves. Wow, someone could be that interested in me. Someone could love me this way. When we say, for God so loved For God so loved, what? The world. The world of men. The world of men who were rebellious. The world of men who wanted their own way. The world of men who would blaspheme, who were idolaters, who would turn from God, who tried to make images, uh, create their own gods, who totally, totally turn away from God day in and day after, day in and day after, day day in and day out. It's going to get it in there somewhere. For God so loved loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, when we look and understand for what love gives, there is no greater love than God's love for us. Jesus said this in John fifteen thirteen: Greater love has no man than this, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus had the most great love for us, that he would come and give his life for us. If love is measured by what it gives, then there can be no greater love than God's love for us. That he would give his son to die our death, to pay the price for our sins, is unimaginable. That's love. It's not that you weren't Not guilty. You were guilty, and yet he still showed his love. While we were still yet his enemies, Christ died for us. That's an incredible love. That's why there have been so many hymn writers that talk so greatly about the love of God. I love that old hymn. The love of God. Some of you might know it. Some of you may not, but I love it. It goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen. Can ever tell it goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. I love the chorus. Sing with me. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Then you have the second verse. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. 
nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What a great picture. That's a great picture. With every stalk on earth a quill, and every, I mean, the ocean was just an inkwell. We would drain the entire ocean if we were to write the glories of God and his love for us. When we meditate on the love that God has for us, it is unimaginable. It's an everlasting love. It's an unfailing love. It's an eternal love. It's a love that is measured by what it gives, and it gave the greatest thing that heaven had to offer. God giving his son for us. See, God loves us. And God is asking us not just to love each other, but to do so more and more. In other words, this is to be a continual practice. This has to be a choice that each one of us has to make. When we interact with people that get on our nerves, have you had anybody get on your nerves? How about the person sitting next to you? Somebody get on your nerves? We have that happen. People get on our nerves. They do little things that bother us. Maybe the way they say words. Maybe they, what they do around, you know, when I interact with them. Maybe they smell funny. Who knows? We have things, little quirks we develop. The more we become familiar. But see, being in community is learning to overlook those faults. Learning to be wrong. To look, overlook minor offenses. To address someone in need because we care for them. It is to be a continual practice that each one of us is to put into practice. How do we do that? How do we do that practically? How do we continually show our love for other people? Well, here's a few things, just some, just some ideas. This isn't an exhaustive lift, but maybe it means taking care of someone in need. Maybe it means bringing them a meal. Maybe it means letting them borrow your car for a couple hours if you need it, if theirs is broken down. Maybe it means giving someone a place to stay for a little bit. Maybe it means watching someone's kids or watching their dog. See, these are just ways that we choose to show our love, practical ways. We are to truly love one another and continue to grow in our love for one another. It also means telling the truth to one another. That we won't let someone continue on in their sin without addressing it and telling them what we're concerned about where they're at and what they're doing. Care enough to confront. See, if we're to please God, we need to love greatly, but we also need to live differently. Live differently. Many of those who identify as Christian don't live differently than the unbelieving world around them, which tells me that either, either one, they're in sin, or number two, they're truly not believers. See, real believers recognize that they need to make changes and will do whatever is necessary to make the changes in their life to please God. Now, what does it mean to live differently? Well, let's look at verse 11 here for a moment. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly. I hate this verse. Because it says, live quietly. I am so guilty of this because if you've ever been around me for any period of time, I'm pretty loud. Does this mean I need to be quiet? I'm to live quietly? I'm not sure if it's humanly capable. Uh, But no, that's not what the text is referring to. It's not about being loud or boisterous. That's not what it's referring to. It's saying this, as we look within this passage. The word aspire means to devote oneself to something that has great personal value. It's your ambition. Now, what is our ambition to do? It's to live quietly. Now, the Greek word literally means rest from work, cease from altercation, and silent. In other words, live quietly. So it's not about your personality. It's about trying to get in fights. It means trying to have so much ambition that you're wasting your life doing it and you're, you're uh, spending yourself, running yourself ragged to do so. So the idea is not about, about, it's not about being loud. The idea is to make it your ambition, and literally it means to make it your ambition to have no ambition. Now that sounds very, very different, and against because many of us have ambition. We want to be better there where we are in life. But what he's mainly saying there is to live quietly, follow God, and do what God's called you to do. Make it your ambition, mainly, to live quietly, saying that your one supreme value is his kingdom, not about all of what you can get and what you can gain. It's not about building up your reputation. It's about living for the kingdom of God. The idea here is to make your ambition to keep a low profile and see that you were to live differently and, and show God's kingdom through your life. And if we're to live differently, then it means our ambitions. It involves our ambitions. 
Now, I think we need to rethink what our ambitions are. It was interesting. There was a study that was done about millennials, uh, the millennial generation. And they asked them, uh, they surveyed them, and they said, what is one thing that you believe in life will make you happy? The number one answer. Number one answer. 80% of millennials responded, the one thing that they believe that can make them happy, survey said, money. Money. 80% said that. 80% 80% said that money would make them happy. The second answer, 50% came in in the second one. Said, survey said, fame. It's the YouTube generation. Matter of fact, they have totally flip-flopped from what this study, similar studies were done in the 1960s to now have shown that in, in 1964 that people, have, uh, those who were teens, value, they put fame very low on a list of 13. I think it was number 12. And, and now it's at number two or number one in this changing generation. With YouTube, television personalities, all of these different um, so-called reality TV shows. People, everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants fame. But it's interesting. Harvard did a study. The, uh, the, their uh, one school, the, uh, the School of Adult Psychology or Behavior, they did a 75-year study. 75 years. No study has ever been done like this in time. With the same group of people. They started off with 724 men some were from Harvard University. Men were from, many of them were from very poor areas of Boston. And they started off with the question, what makes you happy? What makes you happy? And so they would send them surveys every so many years, and they kept, kept in touch with each one of them as they've gone through the years. And they found one thing, one thing makes people happy. And it wasn't money, and it wasn't fame. Without exception, without exception from all of the studies that they did, one thing made people happy. You know what it was? Relationships. Relationships. And, and, it, and they noticed that it was, there was aspects of the relationship. Matter of fact, these relationships affected everything about you, how you live, your quality of life, even your health and brain functions. That's how much relationships, God has wired us for relationships. But yet in our world today, our world says you need to have an ambition to get bigger, get more money, to get more stuff, to get more power, to get more prestige, to get more likes, to get more people looking at your stuff. And they think that's what makes people happy. But no, this has shown unequivocally that it's about the relationships that you have. And see, God has decided to have a relationship with us. That's the most quality relationship you can ever have. It's not a religion. It's a relationship that we can have with Almighty God. And not only that, he puts us into a group of people that we can have relationships with. A family. That's why we have the the t-shirt that says, Village Bible Church is my family. It's our family. We're a family. Dysfunctional, but we're a family at times, being honest. And that's why we have all different generations and all different backgrounds. And I love our family. I love this family. I love you. Some of you more than others. No, I love you because we're family. But here he's saying, make it your ambition to have this, to show this brotherly love. You need to rethink. It's not about what you get. It's about who you love. And how you love. That's what it's about. And it's interesting. That TED Talk, that's what it came from. That study that was done by Harvard, it was done as a TED Talk. Proves what the scripture has already said. Proves something that God had laid out in his words. Some 2,000 years ago. Here. To do so more and more. Love one another. 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 Be together. Be the family. Have those quality relationships that God wants us to have. It involves, if we're to live differently, it involves our ambitions. We need to rethink our ambitions and what we value. Secondly, it involves our affairs, our affairs. Look at verse 10. I'm not talking about an illicit affair. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that we go about our lives. Look at verse 10. And to mind your own affairs. It literally means mind your own business. We're not to be so consumed with the lives of others. Michael Holmes, in his commentary on this uh, passage, in this particular verse, says, In secular usage, both phrases can describe a principled withdrawal from the public arena. It means a withdrawal from public matters to devote time to one's own private interests or to give attention to that which one is best suited. 
in the context of Paul's concern for Philadelphia, he is advising the Thessalonians to avoid as much as possible the strife, social pressures, and tumult of the public arena and the attendant potential for violence against the congregation, and to focus instead on the needs and the building up of the congregation. He's saying, I want you to rethink what your involvement is in public life. You can't be thinking about how to, to, to focus on everybody else's business, what's going on in their lives. You don't need to know what's going on in People Magazine. You don't need to go on Facebook and know what everybody's doing. You need to be able to focus on what God has for you. That's what he's saying. He said, I want you to Mind your own business. Don't be worried about what everybody else is doing. But in your affairs, you focus on God. It means that we're not to be devoted to our jobs or making money or politics. Not that we don't take a stand politically on something or we don't get involved in those different things. But that's not to be our consuming focus. It means that we need to be helping one another take the next step with Jesus to help meet the needs of others. Our focus is to be on God's kingdom first and everything else second. Now look at verse 11. There's the next part of that passage. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. It's not that doing work where you are or not. If it doesn't mean here that if you're not working with your hands, you're doing something bad. Paul is saying here to work with your hands, he's saying you should be valuing work. Greeks would debate with one another. In Greco-Roman society, philosophers and moralists would gather in the public arena and they would have debates on the value of work and certain types of work. And manual labor was considered to be on the low end of the totem pole. They considered that to be the highest form of existence, those who would sit around and talk about philosophical matters and enjoy the pleasures of life all day long. But of course, those guys didn't have to earn paychecks and buy groceries. Paul is saying, I'm redeeming work. I want you to understand how to redeem your work. That God created work, by the way. It's not an invention of the devil, as some people might think. And it doesn't come as a byproduct of the fall. Work is something that God created for Adam to do. When Adam was in the garden, we see this before the fall of man, that he was called to work and tend the garden. And we are called to do our work well. He's saying, I want you to do your work well. So you won't be dependent upon anybody, number one, that if you have the ability to work, then you should work. And and you should do your job well. And how do you do your job well? Well, this is how you do your job well. When Adam had all of the animals brought to him, what did he have to do to the animals? What did he do? He named them, right? He named each one of them. Why didn't God just name them and parade them in front of Adam and go, hippopotamus, giraffe, dog, demon, sorry, cat, Um, why did he do that? Because he gave Adam a responsibility to help take care of the garden, and it was part of his job to name aspects of creation. When you were doing your job well, and you can name parts of your job and how how it's done and what it's done through it and the different parts of it, that is doing your job well in such a way that God receives glory. When you work hard, when you're diligent at your tasks, when you don't take shortcuts, when you're being honest, when you're being on time, when you're not when you're when you're being honest in all of your dealings with customers or with your boss, when you're taking care, if you're a nurse, you're taking care of patients. If you're driving a bus, you drive it well, and you're being good with the the students that are there. If you're an electrician, you make sure you do it to the best of your ability. You don't just get by. If you, you be honest in your dealings, and, you, and if you're in law, you don't consider one client better than the other. You consider each one valuable. Whatever it might be, that's what it means to do your job well, to know every part of it. That means that you are glorifying God by your work. And we need to be able to understand that. If we're to be different, it involves the workplace. It involves our affairs, and it also involves our activities, our jobs. We need to remember that. And he's saying here, I don't want you to be dependent upon anyone, meaning that if you can do your job, if you can work, then you should. Now, there's some that can't, or there's some that want to, and the job's not there. Then whatever you have to do, don't just sit around eating bonbons all day. Make yourself useful and do work. And if you don't have, and it doesn't mean, by the way, to have a full-time job outside of the home. Some of you are inside of the home. If you're running your household well and you're taking care of things well, That means you're doing it in such a way that God receives glory. Do your job well. We have to make sure that we are glorifying him and live differently. That means means our activities. Now, why do we do all of this? Why do we do all of this? Let's look at verse 12. That you may 
that you may walk properly or live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Who are the outsiders? Unbelievers. Those who are not believers, those who are not within the church of God. He's saying that I want you to live in such a way so unbelievers will see Jesus in you. That you might live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, by you doing your job, your job's not to make money. Your job's not there to get all the power and the prestige and all the likes and all this stuff. That's not what it's about, which flies in the face of our culture. Because our culture is all about me. We are the selfie generation. Okay? I, I had one of the most crisis moments on my 40th birthday when someone handed me a selfie stick. And I thought, you have not heard me preach. <laughs> but I made sure if I ever have taken a selfie, and I started having fun with it, but I don't just take a picture of me. Because honestly, I don't want to see pictures of me online. I know you don't want to see pictures of me online. Amen. That is an amen. That is an Amen. But what I like about it is that I can get a picture with a person and take a picture with them. Now that I like. We have to rethink that. It's not about us. It's not about other people, what they think about us and what we put up online and pictures of ourselves. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about loving other people. And we have to understand how we live our life. We do so. We do all of these things. We mind our own business. We work with our hands. Why? So the unbelieving world will see Jesus in us. This is evangelism. We have a totally different aim of our life. The trajectory of our life is different. See, I've heard churches that stand up and want to Christianize all of our desires of being famous. I, I went to a church. Before I came here, I, I uh, pl- applied at a church in Kentucky. And it was a church of about 700 people, and they invited me down after initial interviews. Everything looked great on paper. And I got there, and they had an amazing facility, and they had just beautiful setup of their sanctuary. And it was great, man. This is nice. And I said, I could, I could do this job. This is, this is good. I'll take this church. And, and then one of the pastors gets up to preach, and I wanted to throw up. He gets up and starts preaching about how God, and if you want to be famous, you've got to keep trying. You've got to keep trying. And he starts quoting people like Jim Carrey and Madonna and Elvis and how they kept trying in the face of difficulty. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with faith. I could have heard that at a high school pep rally. I, I, I'm, I'm here to learn about God and what God wants. And let me tell you, that's not what God wants. God is the one who wants, is, is famous, not me. It's not about us. It's about taking up our cross daily and dying to ourselves and making him known, not me. One of my prayers have been in this church that it will be such a work of God that takes place that no man can receive glory. I believe that's starting to happen. And it's not about one person, except that that one person is Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that does that. Jesus is the one that saves. Jesus is the one that transforms. And, that, and our prayer should be like the prayer of John, or the words of John the Baptist. He says, he must become greater, I must become lesser. That should be the hope of every one of our lives. But see, our world flies in the face of that today. It's about getting more and getting more prestige and seeing how far we've come. That's pride. That's the devil. That's not what God says. He humbled himself. He had no place to lay his head. He did so to bring about the salvation of man. And God is asking us to do this, that an unbelieving world will see Jesus in us. Now let me ask you this. What do your friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members see in you by your life? If they were to examine, and I want you to be really honest with yourself, if they were to examine your work, if you work, you were able to work, you have a job, can people see Jesus in your work? And not just your work, by the way, it's in everything. Mind your own affairs means also it means your own money. How do you spend your money? How do you, how do you what do you do with your money? Can you can people see that that Jesus is God through your life? I mean, what is the aim of your life? What is your goal? What is your passion? To make it? To be famous? To achieve something? I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have ambition. What I'm saying is our ambition, first of all, must be to know Christ and to make Him known. And you can use your work to do that. If it 
anything, if you have anything else, then Christ is your ambition. It takes the place of Him. In His place, it is idolatry. Your sole passion is to know Christ and to make Him known. But let's get practical. Let's get real practical, where the rubber meets the road. What does this affect? Well, first of all, it might affect your occupational choice. These aren't in your notes, but you can write them down if you want to. This affects your occupational choice. Your aim. What is your aim? Why do you take the job that you get? I'm not saying you shouldn't take a job where you don't make money, but the question is, is am I ready to help people? There's something wrong in our society when we value the Donald Trumps of this world because they have money more than we value those who take time to take care and raise orphans and play with children. Teachers. Here's another question for us. How do we view politics? Here it says, remember, with the withdrawal, not that we completely withdraw from public life. We are in a free society. We have the ability to exercise our rights We have rights in our country. We've been given those. And we are to exercise our rights as free citizens of our country uh, to influence government as as God has seen fit. Now, the the question is, is, what is the purpose of politics? What is the purpose of government? The purpose of government, biblically speaking, is twofold. First of all, it is to foster the good. That's That's one of the points, parts of government. Foster the good. Government is a creation of God. And the purpose of it is to foster government and to restrain evil. That's what it's to do. To restrain evil and to foster that which is good. When it goes beyond those parameters, the government has overreached what God has ordained it to be and to do. So we get involved to help foster good and to restrain evil. But politics will never solve the condition of the human heart. Never. Only the gospel can truly change a heart. There's been a lot of talk about terrorist activity and the Syrian refugee crisis and people worried about terrorist things taking place and many people have been nervous about a lot. But you know, when you think of terrorism, yes, there are things that could happen. I'm not denying that. We have to be smart and evaluate. But even if we were to with, set up all of the borders and not let people in, there's one thing that hasn't been changed and that's the human heart. See, This past December, I don't know if you saw this in the news or that, but two young men were accused of a terrorist plot. They were trying to take an armory to partner with ISIS. Here's the thing. They didn't come from Syria. You know where they came from? Aurora. They were from here, born and bred here. See, it's, it's about the condition within. It's about the heart. God wants the heart. Unless the heart has changed. I mean, the, the, the government can, and again, foster the good, restrain evil as much as it possibly can, but it's only the gospel that can truly change the human heart. And it's not about outward conformity, but inner, inward transformation. Now, I'm not saying we don't take precautions with things. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, ultimately, change doesn't rest in politics. It rests in a person. And that's Jesus. And that is Jesus. We have to have a different aim. Thirdly, these are little smaller points. When we talk about our career choices, we need to ask ourselves another question. How do I spend my money? Because, see, if we're to make the kingdom of God our first priority, we need to reevaluate ourselves. In 1997, writer Tim Stafford of Christianity Today did an analysis based on several authoritative surveys of church givers. He noted that the greater percentage of givers were those who made less than $20,000 a year. What does that mean? It means this, that if you made over $100,000, which is a lot of money, you still gave less percentage-wise than the person making below $20,000 a year. That means that making money as a Christian doesn't mean that you give it. He noted that the percentage a person gave actually decreased from 1985 to 1993 per person or percentage-wise, even though the economy got stronger and people made more money, which tells us that people were making more money and spending more money on their toys and comforts rather than, than on the expansion of God's kingdom. See, God desires that we live differently. God's not Giving is not just about our money, by the way. It's about our hearts. Do we give that way? Do we base our lifestyle choices on always getting bigger and better? Do we think how it might affect our ability to give and serve and love others? 
See, the Bible is calling us to live differently, plain and simple. It means that we're to love greatly and to live differently. Our lives are to be different than the unbelievers around us. Is yours. By what you watch, by looking at your checkbook, how you spend your money, your bank statement, does it look different? Do you watch the same shows and movies as your neighbor or coworkers watch, even though you know that God is not behind what you are seeing? Are you sleeping around? Are you looking at porn? How are you spending your money? Would you get a smaller house so that you could have extra money to give for the furtherance of God's kingdom? Is your life different? That's a question each one of us has to answer. And I can't answer it for you. You have to answer yourself. And what, then you have to ask yourself, Lord, what changes? You need to ask God this. Lord, what changes do you want me to make? To make your kingdom my first priority above all things. Because you see, when we make God our first priority, we find, and we have to understand, our joy is ultimately found in God. We give to God not to get. Not to get material things, although sometimes that is a blessing that he does give, but to get God himself. Because it's in the process of our giving and worshiping him that he communicates his presence to us. We need to make sure that we are doing that. And he will receive glory and we will increase in joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you have blessed us so much here in the United States of America. Lord, you have blessed us beyond our ability to even fathom, especially, Lord, when we look at the rest of the world. We see so many majority cultures and what they're going through. Lord, we see how much you have blessed us. But, Lord, help us not to be selfish or greedy, but help us to give back to you what is already yours. Lord, you have given us the ability to have and make wealth. Lord, we want to give you our wealth, but we also want to give you most of all our our hearts. Lord, help us to truly love greatly, to love the people that are unlovely, to have a love that you have for us. Lord, help us to love the way that you love us so strongly, so passionately. If love, Lord, is measured by what it gives, then we stand in awe at what you have given unto us. And help us to love in similar ways. Help us to give our lives and sacrifice so that for the furtherance of your kingdom. And Lord, also help us to live differently than the world around us. Help our values to be different. Help our dreams and aspirations to be different than the world around us. Lord, and help us to live in such a way that people stop and look at us and they go, why would he do that? Why would she do that? What would possess a person to do that, Lord? And then they would question and want to know who you are because they realize how awesome you are because of it. So Lord, draw us unto yourself. Help us to make the changes that are necessary, painful though they may be, but help us to do so in faith for the expansion of your kingdom, not only here in Aurora, but all over the world. We pray your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, amen.